0: Uh, open the word of God, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Hey David, you know what we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago? About updates showing up. I just got one and I'm going to say, remind me in 24 hours. 1 Peter chapter 1. I've told Norton not to bother me on Sunday mornings, but uh, Norton updates. Norton's- security. Uh, this morning we're going to look at, among other things, at a really interesting topic, namely the uh, believer's inheritance in heaven. Now, I used to tongue-in-cheek say one of my goals in life was to have a rich uncle who'd leave me a big inheritance, and that just didn't work out. But uh, we've got uh, an inheritance which, as we're told here, is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And if you're a believer, Aubrey McPherson or Olga Pollock, you can put your name in the blank there. So we're going to think about, as I say, among several other things, our heavenly inheritance. But I want you all to please notice something here. Uh, Basically, for the last three weeks, Trey, we've looked at two verses. I mean, the same two verses. Uh, But the plan right now is this week, we're going to look at three verses, three different verses. And so I want you to notice we are making progress. You know, First Timothy says, make sure your progress is noted by all. So uh, we spent three weeks on two verses. And now today we're going to upgrade and spend one week on three verses. So I think that should be duly noted and put in the record, okay? But uh, our passage emphasizes today that for Christians, Homer Cox and, and Deborah Smith, Brad McCoy, our uplook should transform our outlook. The work of God in our past, when we came to faith, in our future, which includes our heavenly inheritance, should produce persevering praise, consistent praise, even in the face of our worst problems on earth. And so I think that's the big thing that these verses are, are teaching us from the Word of God this morning. But before we dive into that study, let's pray for teachability and for troops and peace officers and firefighters as we uh, feed on the inspired text here. And uh, Bo West, if you would, pray for us in that direction, okay? Thank you. Just a couple of reminders here. Yes, week two of the three-week p.m. Bible study. It's not too late to start. If you had to miss last week, you can come on uh, Sunday night tonight or Thursday, either one. And also... Uh, I was doing this to make points with Jean, but she's not in the room, so be sure and tell her that I reminded you that we've got a lunch meeting today. But as I said, we're going to look at our heavenly inheritance, and uh, we're going to see that it's described as imperishable and undefiled and won't fade away, and we'll talk about what that stuff means. But look at that second one. Uh, The word undefiled means unmarred, uh, something that can't be damaged by any outside person or force. And so with that in mind, and just to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, I want to show you something. This is not laugh-out-loud funny by any matter or means, but it is loudly thought-provoking, I think. So uh, you're going to be looking at the side of a house that somebody has written uh, graffiti on. Somebody else. Would you want somebody to write graffiti on the side of your house? I don't think so. But anyway, this is... Uh, this was kind of like sweeping the internet like six months ago, so some of you may have seen it, but uh not laugh out loud funny but loudly thought provoking. So this is literally what some criminal wrote on the side of somebody else somebody else's house. Things I hate. Okay. Vandalism. <laughs> Irony. And lists. <laughs> yeah, so you know uh it's kind of self defeating but when you live in a postmodern world there's a lot of irrational things that go on and people just don't connect the dots anymore so we live in an irrational world and uh, you know the one place you can find some sanity is in in the teachings of the scripture and uh, hopefully uh, that's the way you see it as well first uh, Peter really kind of has two as a book as a, as a whole kind of has two parts uh, the first part is kind of Living Your Faith Under Fire 101 and Living Faith Under Fire 102. And we're looking now at a summary of what Christian faith is directed in and what it's about. And then we'll see a survey of Christian works. And then the second part, we'll look at the importance of submission. Submission, that's a word Americans don't like. Americans don't want to submit, man, to anything. Uh, I mean, in the last two weeks, we've had the Lord's Prayer booed down at two congressional town hall meetings, one in Colorado and one in Louisiana. And then when the First Lady tried to lead the Lord's Prayer, she was excoriated by the press afterwards. Uh, it's it's getting scary. I know the left thinks uh, uh, Trump's after him. I see the culture is kind of coming after us. But as Kissinger used to say, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean I don't have real enemies. But uh, in the center... Uh, of the uh, the setting of this book is what we have been spending several weeks on. You'll notice that Peter writes this letter initially in verse 1 to those who reside as aliens and we could probably translate that refugees par epidemois, people have been forced to leave their homes to live somewhere that they're not really holding any allegiance to uh, because of persecution. And uh, what we would call modern Turkey The ancient Romans, and that's what uh, the New Testament is written to, the Roman culture, broke down into a lot of uh, little pieces, including uh, there's the area near Antioch of Syria where the Christians that read this letter the first time were originally from. That's where their homes are. But uh, he says, I'm writing to those who formerly lived in Syria and now are all over modern Turkey in these Roman provinces uh, that they would have been very familiar with. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, which is just that westernmost part of Turkey, as we would call it, and Bithynia, and it goes on from there. And so you see in this book, which is talking about living your faith under fire, in the very center of it, a purpose statement. And that purpose statement basically says, as spiritual aliens, refugees, short-timers on earth, Christians should not be controlled just by our emotions and our feelings because you're going to get your emotions ruffled and your feelings hurt in this old world. And that's just at church. What do you get in the world? Then it's really going to get bad. But we should consistently live our faith centered on the person and the work and the promises and the propositions of Jesus Christ so that unbelievers who slander us because we are believers will see the reality of our faith, of Christ in our lives, and ultimately glorify God by coming to Him in faith, so that's what the book is all about, and I'm going to stress that throughout the whole book. That that's kind of the umbrella He's hanging over the whole book. That He's emphasizing that uh, key statement, that purpose statement for the book. But uh, as we say today, we're going to see that the work of God in our past and our future should produce persevering praise. And really, we've got two parts in this passage. Verse three emphasizes that believers in Christ, Jan Deeg. Or Janice Skinner, uh, should persistently praise God because of His working in our past, both Anthony and in our past at the work of Christ. And in, in, and He's talking to believers, so they've come to faith prior to reading this. Uh, however, whenever God brought you to the faith is something that uh, should always be a touchstone for you. You know, when we do the Lord's Supper, you know, Paul says, uh, do this, uh, uh as he said, he says, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the passage I've memorized, but he talks about, uh, do this in remembrance of Christ until he comes back. So by definition, the Lord's Supper, Debbie Corbin, is for you and me as we look back at the accomplished work of Christ and look forward to the consummation of history. And that'll start with the rapture of the church and so on. So I've always th- felt like the, uh, the Lord's Supper is designed to kind of ground us in those two realities. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you the, the metaphor I'm going to use at the very end of the message. You know, for years, I've, one of these things that, that I've said that I hear a lot of people, uh, say back to me because they find it helpful <clears throat> is when you feel like you're at the end of your rope, you know, doubt your doubts, but tie a knot on the end of the rope and hold on. And, and people like that because just, I think that summarizes a lot of biblical truth. But, uh, let me give you another one today. Uh, you know, I grew up in Miami, Florida. We lived through one hurricane I remember as a little kid, Hurricane Donna, that came right over our house because the eye of the hurricane came over our house and it's so weird, you know, everything gets, gets calm, you know, for a few minutes, but you don't want to get too far away from your house because it's going to come back the other direction because it's you know, going around. But, uh, I, I remember seeing some, uh, 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 local television. This is some of these images, you know, from 100 years ago. You still remember. Uh, some of these little boats that actually s- that rode out that hurricane because if you have a little boat and you tie it down fore and aft, it can actually bounce around on the water and the waves, but it will ride out the storm pretty much. And so I want you to think about that the next time you're in a crisis and you feel like a tsunami is hitting you emotionally or physically. I, I mean, Jan Deegan has gone through uh, every possible emotion uh, for a long time, trying to help her dad, but in the last week it 's been an incredible roller coaster meg uh, strange has been on a roller coaster but think of your, yourself in, 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 as you know as a believer in this in this little dinghy uh, and jesus isn 't the dinghy he 's bigger than a dinghy, but your faith is the dinghy, and your faith is entrusted in, in Jesus, and you tie a knot on what you know about the past God has caused you to be born again. You tie a knot on what you know is your future. You have a heavenly inheritance, and just ride out the storm. And I think that can be helpful. So, because of our past, we should persistently uh, praise God. Because uh, some of the things James talked about, things we just sang about, and then verses four and five is saying we should persistently praise God because of God's promised working in the future. Okay, so let's read uh, verses really one through five, and then we'll jump into verse three. Peter, who's the author of this, the Holy Spirit's inspiring him, an apostle, capital A, right, Nicole, capital A, apostle of Jesus Christ, to writing this letter to those who reside as refugees, aliens, uh, par epidemois, people away from their homes because of persecution, who have their heart somewhere rather than where they are, which right now is Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Roman Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We talked about that last week. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey by believing the call of the gospel, to obey in faith Jesus Christ, be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure, despite the fact you're not living where you want to be. You've lost your jobs. You've lost your pensions. But God knows that. And he'll be with you even in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, or Marlow. He'll be with you in Marlow. Okay, he doesn't just stay in one little spot. Blessed be, and that sure should really be translated praise be. Praise be to our God and Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, we hear about grace and salvation a lot, but what's mercy? Is it the same thing or what? Has caused us to be born again, born spiritually. We're born physically from a mom, born spiritually when we come to faith in Christ and given a new everlasting spiritual life unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that hope, notice, verse 4, is the inheritance. That is, we're talking about an inheritance in heaven, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So, Connie, I've always thought of that. This is probably not theologically correct, but I've always thought of that as a big box wrapped up with a big ribbon on it with my name on it, or in your case, your name on it, You know, Connie Norton because it says it's reserved for you specifically. So, Lori McKean, your name's on a box, or however this thing is organized. And I'll give you some suggestions on that when we get there. And watch this. Not our inheritance is protected. We already know it's protected, don't we, Michael? Because it's imperishable, undefiled, won't fade away. It's, the inheritance is protected. But how about me? Because I'm one of those people, if there's any way anybody can mess something up, I probably will. You know, that's the kind of way I think about stuff. Uh, who? That's not the inheritance. That's a what? Who? This is Bo West. This is Ron Miller. Who are protected by the power of God? You know, salvation is not something you do for God. Okay, it's something God does for you. You know, it's only as strong as its weakest link. And if it's based on me, it's not going. It's probably going to fall apart. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation? An aspect of our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Go back to verse 3. Notice it says, Praise be to God and to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've talked about this a few times lately, but when theologians look at uh, the Trinity, they see uh, them uh, working three different parallel functions in the plan of salvation. God the Father is the author or the architect of the plan, God the Son is the active agent. He takes on humanity without ceasing to be deity and actually does the work of redemption. And then God the Holy Spirit is the activator, common grace, efficacious grace, saving faith of the plan. And here, though, Paul, I mean, Peter, I should say, is focusing on, on God the Father as the author, the, the architect of the plan. Uh, and he's got a plan, and he likes his plan, and he didn't consult me about the plan, but that's okay because he's smarter than I am. And you got to kind of understand that, Donna. Now, you didn't realize his plan involved you basically running three different family dollar stores at the same time. I mean, I can juggle three golf balls, but I I, I could not juggle three churches. But you're having to juggle uh, three stores at the same time, so it's pretty pretty amazing. Now, notice, um, so praise God the Father is the author, the architect of the plan who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again? Now, uh, sometimes these sayings that some preachers come up with and that laymen uh, just love to recite to other preachers like me sound really good, but they're not theologically accurate. And so, you know, that my job is to make sure all the little sayings that you've got running around in your head are theologically accurate. Okay? And the thing I've heard preachers say, have people tell me preachers say, is uh, grace is when you get things you don't deserve. And mercy is when you don't get things you do deserve. And you know, that sounds good. And those dynamics are part of salvation. But that's not what mercy is, okay? I'm not sure if these guys don't know or they're afraid to tell you. But I'm not afraid to tell you, okay? <laughs> Grace and mercy are similar, but they're not exactly the same thing. And I spelled that on purpose. That's Oklahoma, right, James? Just a shout out and Arkansas, okay? Now, we talk about grace a lot, and it's, really, it's interesting the way these individual human authors uh, had their own vocabularies, and they all fit together, but somebody said, uh, you know, uh, Peter here is going to talk about hope, what we're anticipating in our future a lot, and you look at Peter's letters, uh, Hen- Henry, and Peter emphasizes hope a lot, Paul, in his letters, really emphasizes faith a lot, and John... In his first, second, third, John emphasizes love a lot. So my question is, who's right? Should we emphasize, should we emphasize hope? Should we emphasize faith? Or maybe you should emphasize love. Which, what do you want to do, Julie? Which one do you want to do? Wouldn't you say that a well-balanced Christian life would, you know, involve all three, right? But some of us, so, you know, some of us preachers kind of focus on certain things, realize it goes back to, to John, Paul, and Peter. They do the same thing. But you know, grace is what you hear a lot. Uh, it's an expression of God's love. You know, in that uh, list of list of God's uh, uh, attributes, we talk about you know that I list. Sometimes, uh, sometimes people say, "Well, you don't have holiness in there. You don't have mercy. You don't have love." Well, I'd say holiness really is just justice and righteousness together. That's what holiness is. That's kind of a compound thing. And to me, uh, you know, God is love. Right? First John says that. So why isn't that an attribute? Well, it is. But it doesn't say God is grace. But is he gracious? Yeah. God is mercy. He shows mercy. But mercy and, and, and grace are really expressions of God's love, that attribute. Grace is unmerited favor. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. Uh, grace would be like a bonus at work. Okay? You get your salary, and they owe you your salary. And if they don't pay your a salary, they're uh, ripping you off, and they're, you know, breaching the law. But if you get a bonus, that, there's nothing that says they have to give you the bonus. That's strictly grace, right? Uh, it's needed due to our inability to save ourselves. We, we need God's unmerited favor because we can't save ourselves. That's what that's teaching. Now mercy is similar, but not exactly the same. Mercy is favor given, blessing, maybe blessing's a better way, okay? Blessing. Good stuff. Good stuff given to somebody just because how pitiful they are, okay? Now, I mean, I know Phyllis is has a big heart for animals, and I do too, especially if they're fried, because I really, really enjoy uh, fried animals, you know. But I mean, now Phyllis, you know, I mean, she has done Herculean things to save animals and stuff, and, uh, you know, I just have this fear of rabies. And when I see small mammals that I've hit, or somebody else has hit with a car, I feel sorry for them. I feel a pity for them. But I'm not going to go mess with them because what if they bite me, draw blood, and then I have to go get the, the, the rabies shot. So you know, I uh, have a certain amount of admiration for the people who have enough guts or not enough knowledge to realize you can get rabies from from small mammals, you know. But uh but yeah, you know, I hate I hate when I hit a skunk or something like that. Although there've been a whole lot of skunks around lately. Have you noticed that? What's the deal? Spring. Okay. But yeah, I mean, if you look up the word, mercy means favor given because of the pitiful state of the recipient. You just feel for them, uh, and mercy is needed because of our gross guilt and our negative spiritual equity with God. We got nothing. This idea that salvation is let's make a deal. God, I'll give you this; you give me eternal life. You got no, you got no chips in that deal, man. He you got no chips he needs or wants. You know, he doesn't need us, but he wants us. So that's that's interesting to me that to tease out those differences. Uh, now notice in the clause here it says uh, that uh, God the Father has caused us to be born again. In other words, He, God the Father, is the subject of the clause, which means He produces the action of the verb. Salvation is something God does for Lori; it's not something Lori has done for God. He did, God doesn't need Lori's help, but He's happy for her to score points for the team as His daughter, right? Uh, if you'll uh, notice here, uh, it says that he has caused us to be born again. Now, the first time that's found in Scripture, Trey, is in, in John 3, when Jesus tells Nicodemus this aging, revered, rabbinical teacher in Judaism. In fact, Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Judaism. He's probably the most famous, the most knowledgeable expert on the whole Old Testament law living in the first century, other than Jesus, <laughs> Right? And he's convinced that he can be a good enough Jew, he can earn his way to heaven. And Jesus just throws cold water on his whole system, says, unless you're born again, unless you get a spiritual birth, you can't affect by yourself, you can't earn by your own goodness, you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, he's thinking physically. And, you know, Jesus goes out of his way to say stuff that's probably going to be misunderstood the first time. But if you really want to know, he'll help you figure it out. So Nicodemus says, be born again. And this is a guy, you can ask him in heaven. I think he's probably having a, I've heard of midlife crises, but some of us are too old to have midlife crises. So maybe you have an old age crises. But I think he's really dealing with his mortality, and he's looking at his face and seeing all the wrinkles in the mirror and whatnot. And so when Jesus says, you got to be born again, he's thinking, yeah, fountain of youth. He says, how can I get back into my mother's womb and start over? But I'd love to if I could. And Jesus said, I'm not talking about that. He was born of the water sack and the water breaks when the physical birth happens is physical. He was born of the spirit is spiritual. You need a spiritual birth. You're alive physically, but you need a spiritual birth to go to heaven. And uh the technical term for this in theology is called regeneration. Regeneration is just defined as the importation of eternal or uh, everlasting life to the sinner who believes in Christ. And a really nice passage on that is uh Found in Titus 3. Now we're going from Peter to, uh, from Peter to, to Paul here. But I, I love this. This is one long sentence. And this is a good example. i told you many times. Don't just stop at the end of a verse. I mean, look for sentences. And so you have, you know, uh, the first letter is capitalized and the last one's got a period after it. So that's a sentence. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Same thing here. Save uh, is the verb. He is the subject of the clause, the subject produces the action of the verb. So who's producing salvation? It's God, not Derek. Uh, not because of works we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. What does that mean? Favor given because of our pitiful state, right? Uh, by the washing of regeneration. It's a renewing. You know, you uh you you, you mow your, your yard on a hot August afternoon and then you go in and take a bath or a shower is what I would do, and you feel you just feel like you're human again. I mean, you just feel so much better, you know? The washing, the renewing of regeneration, the impartation of everlasting life, spiritual life, to the believing sinner. That is the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now notice, all three members of the Trinity involved in this one sentence, and you quite often see that, right? So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs. Now there's Paul and Peter saying the same thing because we're going to be talking about this inheritance. Remember in first Peter he says that he's caused to be born again so we can obtain an inheritance in heaven that's imperishable, undefiled, and that won't fade away, reserved in heaven. And Paul says we're heirs a lot in his letters too. So this idea of an inheritance or us being heirs of God because of who our heavenly Father is, is a really important concept. Now go back to first Peter one three God as our Savior has caused us to be born again when we trusted Christ uh, two unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and notice, he's caused us to be born again uh, theologians talk about uh, the past the present and the future tenses of salvation this is true for believers uh, you know I was born at a I was born at a very young age and very close to my mother at the time. Back uh, March sixteenth, nineteen fifty-three, and then uh, many years later, Jonathan McCoy, our second son, was born on February twenty-sixth, uh, nineteen eighty-three. So he's thirty-four. Jonathan's thirty-four today, man. I'm way too too young to have a thirty-four four-year-old little kid, much less a thirty-seven-year-old little kid. But uh, yeah, so all those things are past tense for me standing here. But I got saved at the back. I'm sitting near the back row of Southern Baptist revival. At age nine at a church called Opolaka, first Baptist Church of Opalacka, Florida, and it's a suburb of Miami. It's still there. Uh, and so that that was uh, in nineteen sixty two. So here we are. What year is it now? Is it still twenty seventeen? This seemed like such a long sermon already. Are we in twenty eighteen yet? Yeah, no, it's just just me. I'm on I'm still a little sick, so my head's still spinning a little bit when I get excited. And I get excited up here every week. You know, every to me, Super Bowl Sunday. Every Sunday Super Bowl Sunday. Are you kidding me? But, yeah, so uh, when I was nine, I, I I was saved. I was saved. God saved me when I was nine years old. And here I am, and I'm 60 or something. And, uh, you know, I'm older than that now. So, you know, standing here, I can think about my past tense salvation, justification by faith, present tense dynamics of my salvation, God's working to sanctify me experientially, and then future. And, you know, some of you haven't heard this, so I'll do it. The rest of you... Just do this. You know, when I turned, uh, when I turned 60 a few years ago, my wife said, I was kind of bummed out because the round numbers kind of freak you out, you know, and I said, man, I'm, I'm getting over the hill. And Debbie said, don't worry about it, Brad. Uh, you know, I think you're going to live to be 120. And I said, well, thank you, dear. Why'd you say that? And she said, because you look half dead right now. So I was 60, so half dead. So at some point, rapture or Physical death, I'll be absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. So standing here, I can look at a past aspect of my salvation, talking about present aspects of salvation in my life, and anticipate my future aspects. The theologians talk about that. And here, obviously, verse 3, he's talking about their past tense. He caused you. He doesn't say he is causing you or will cause you. He says he caused you. He's talking to believers, right, Blanche? This is a letter from a believer to believers inspired by the Spirit. And so in the past, if you're a believer, uh, you've been saved from the penalty of sin. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's moved us, the, our sins from us as far as our standing with God. That's, that's pretty good, isn't it? He knows all about your worst day and your best day and your last day, and he forgives you all the sins Christ died for, and he died before you were even born. So he knows about all your sins, and that's all been taken care of as far as your legal standing before God based on your past tense salvation if you're a believer right now. Present tense is the Holy Spirit works to deliver us from the power of sin in our life. Now, we all have, God doesn't do a sin nature ectomy on us at salvation, so we're still able to sin, and we do leak some oil, but we're also able not to sin as believers, as we abide in Christ. And then the future tense for our salvation is what 4 and 5 emphasize, this heavenly inheritance, at least that's a big part of it. Uh, we will be saved from the very presence and effects of sin, And theologians call that first part, justification, the present part, sanctification, and the future tense of salvation, glorification. And this passage is saying, thinking about our justification and our glorification is kind of the way for us to tie off our dinghy so we can ride out the storms of life and have some kind of perspective, right? Now, speaking of tenses, Isaiah says to unbelievers, today is the day of salvation for you. Because you might not get tomorrow. You might not get this afternoon. But the gospel message, and James is so right, it's all about the cross, and now we've got uh, the emerging church telling us that uh, uh, atone, atoning sacrifices are a uh, cosmic child abuse. And if that's not the ultimate blasphemy and maybe the unpardonable sin, in effect, to look at Jesus and deny the efficacy of his saving work, uh, I would not want to say that for fear that a lightning bolt might come through the roof Or whatever. But the essence of the gospel, Anthony, is because Christ died for your sins, you don't have to die in your sins. Because Christ died for our sins as our substitute, we don't have to die in our sins. But He's not dead anymore, okay? As important as the cross is, the cross is validated by the resurrection. Uh, uh, as I often say, a dead savior, Buddha, Muhammad, uh, can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven, or from Saudi Arabia to heaven, or from uh, Thailand to heaven for Buddhist, Muslims, and and Americans. But uh, the resurrected Savior is the only one who can. And we're not talking about a, just a a medical resuscitation. You know, people can have clinical death for a few minutes, and you can bring them back with paddles. I mean, we've got we've got the paddle machine in the kitchen. So if we ever need it, we're going to take every in, in God's will. Uh, and it's you know. I guess Jen and uh, and uh, Mrs. Flusher, uh my good friend. I can't think of her first name. Gina, yeah, you know, showed us how to do that. And for me, you know, I, I'm one of these people. If anything can go wrong, it probably will, and I'll probably do it. I probably need somebody to tell me how to do that every year, just so I feel good about not having to think about it if we have to use it. But yeah, I mean, that's not a miracle. That's an amazing thing you can do that. But after a few minutes, you, nobody can do that. How long was Jesus in the tomb by the way it was just like 5 minutes several days right so he's def- he's room temp his body's room temperature this was not medical resuscitation this was supernatural uh, resurrection and you can't reproduce this in a science laboratory for anybody you know what I mean you just can't do it it's supernatural but that's the essence of the gospel Christ died for our sins and rose again saving faith is this active receptive trust or Jesus I'm a sinner uh I can't fix it and I, but I want you to. I dare to believe you paid for my sins on the cross and rose again. I accept you as my Savior. That's, that's, that's as, as Calvin said very explicitly in his life, it's just the empty hands of the sinner receiving the merits of Christ. You know, uh, if, if you're willing, you can make me clean, the guy says to Jesus. And he cleanses him, you know. Uh, what did the terrorist on the cross say? Remember me when you come in your kingdom. I'm a bad guy. I've broken all the commandments. I can't fix it, but I want you to. That's basically what he's saying there, right? So, look at this. Uh, bottom part of verse 3. And see, if I wanted to push you guys to the limit, I could have spent the entire morning just on verse 3. But I'm not going to do that. We're going to do 4 and 5 too. Uh, he's caused us to be born again to, and this is future salvation because it hadn't happened yet, but it's coming, to a living hope, a dynamic hope through his resurrection. This is really going to happen. Uh, and you say, what's the hope here? Well, Lord, just keep reading. Because notice, at the end of verse 3, there's a comma, not a period, to obtain an inheritance. The hope he's talking about here is specifically your heavenly inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and so on and so forth. The word for hope, elpis, in the original, means faith directed forward to something you're looking forward to. So some of you people who are pizza lovers, I know I know you're coming to the uh, Friends of the Classroom meeting to be enlightened about our Christian ed functions, but for some of you, it's more to get free pizza, isn't it? I know that. Okay, so you're sitting here looking forward to the pizza guy getting here in a little bit so you can have your pizza. Uh, I'm not a big pizza lover, so I, I come for the right reasons, right? Now, uh, I'm really not a big eater. I'm not a big lunch eater, mainly, but I do it if, when i got to get with my friends. But uh, faith, uh, hope, excuse me, is faith directed forward to something we're looking forward to or anticipating or the thing we're actually looking forward to itself. Uh Now, I remember, I'm gonna tell a story on Krista. I remember one time, you didn't have, you didn't seem to have a lot of hope. Uh, when, when Homer and Pam went to Israel with us, I remember we met just north of Burger King so we could all get in a couple of vehicles and all go to, uh, DFW and get on the airplane and get the thing started. And Krista is watching her mom and dad, she loves so much, leaving. And she's going, they're going to Israel! You know, Israel! That's in the Middle East! It's dangerous, you know? And she's she's upset and crying, and I always think that's lovely to see, that kind of love displayed. But I thought, Lord, look, if anything happens to anybody on this trip, let it be me, because I don't want to have to come back home and tell Krista I've misplaced her parents somewhere in Israel. And I just don't want to have to tell that to that sweet lady. So, and, and praise God we got them back alive, didn't we? But, uh, yeah, I like to think of little kids and birthday parties, you know little kids just love their birthday parties. I mean Peter, who had a, unfortunately fell on a on concrete this uh, Wednesday afternoon and got a bad cut in his forehead but uh, it'll look good if he's a basketball player he'll be able to anti- you know intimidate all of his opponents you know, just by showing up you know but hopefully he won't score up too much, but it was traumatic on everybody, especially us long distance but uh, I always felt I remember his birthday last year in October. He was—he you know, he was born the same day Franny got married, so we, we have something in common. But uh yeah, he's three years old, and he decided he wanted a dance party. Now these—his parents are Baptists; they don't even—they're not even supposed to dance, you know. And yeah, three, they want a dance party, you know. So, but he looked so forward to that thing, and I thought that's what biblical hope is—really looking forward to something you know is going to happen. Not I hope it might happen, but looking forward to something that's been promised you, you know. Now, this hope, as I say, uh, is specifically described as this inheritance that's undefiled and so on in heaven. So just notice that. What's the hope in verse 3? It's the inheritance in verse 4. And I didn't get that because the commentary said so, although a good commentary, I hope, would say that, but because that's just what Peter says. And so let, let's transition from verse 3 now. We should persistently praise God, even in our worst circumstances, for what he's done for us in the past through the work of Christ and coming, bringing us to himself in faith. And we should also persistently praise God, no matter how bad the circumstances are, because of uh, his working in our future as an effect of our salvation. Now, look at verses 4 and 5. So God has taken the initiative to save us and is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it transcends our physical life now. And part of that is it involves us obtaining an inheritance in heaven, which is imperishable, undefiled, won't fade away, reserved in heaven with your name on it, as it were, and we're being protected by the power of God, so we're actually going to participate in that. Earthly inheritance, heavenly inheritance. Inheritance is kind of a big theme in the Old Testament where you have certain uh, people, patriarchs and David, and give inheritances to their, their kids. An earthly inheritance is given to children on earth based on who our parents are. And a lot of us didn't have rich and famous parents, and so they didn't really have much left over uh, after they died, typically after you die. Uh, however, in the Old Testament, uh, typically uh, all the, the sons were considered to be heirs, but one of the sons, usually the firstborn son, was a double heir. However, that wasn't always the case. In Joseph's case, he was going to be the guy with the double portion, Remember? And then even in the New Testament, the prodigal son story, you know, we're told about the, the guy living on the Ponderoso. He's got two sons and a big ranch operation. And the younger son is not going to wait for daddy to die and for him to get his part of the inheritance, which would have been like a third of it, because big brother probably would have gotten two pieces and little brother would have got one. But it, if you're talking about $10 million, that's still a pretty big chunk, right? And the kid just says, hey, daddy, obey. This is a paraphrase, give me my inheritance now. Now, the father doesn't have to do that. The father can say, forget it. But the father gave it to him, and the story goes on from there. And some people think, well, it's so so amazing that the father received this guy back into family fellowship. Yeah, God is no less gracious to sons than he is to sinners, you know, for one thing. But also, yeah, the son was welcomed back into family fellowship, but he's totally blown his inheritance. He's gone. But earthly inheritance is given to children on earth based on who our parents are. This heavenly inheritance is given to God's children when we get to heaven based on who our heavenly father is. Okay? And that's big. I mean, you think of Donald Trump or uh, who's the guy from Omaha that's the famous stock investor, uh, Warren Buffett. You know, if, if they were your father or something, boy, you'd really have a big inheritance coming, right? Well, we've got a much bigger inheritance than that. And look at verse four. It's described in several different ways, and it's interesting. You've got to play in words on there with the original Greek that the readers would have noticed. But for us, let's just focus on these uh, adjectives. This inheritance is imperishable and it's undefiled and it won't fade away. Now, what does all that mean? Well, imperishable means it's permanent. Okay, uh, it's it's going to be there for you. Okay, it's not going to go anywhere. Undefiled means it can't be damaged by outside forces. Like the side of that house we looked at at the beginning where somebody had vandalized it and had defaced the house. Uh, our inheritance can't be damaged by outside forces. And then the Greek word here for won't fade away basically means it will not fade away. That's what that word means in Greek. But uh, it means it's not capable of decay from within. So it's permanent. It can't be damaged by outside forces. It can't, it's not subject to decay, decay from within. But the big question is, and James, I think you'll appreciate this, the big question is manna. Now manna was this food that God provided for the Exodus generation that would look like flaky bread appeared on the ground every morning. Uh, but when they first saw it, they said manna, and manna is Hebrew for what is it? And it became a technical term for the stuff God keep giving him for thirty-eight years in a row. But uh, so the big question people wonder about: what is this inheritance exactly? I've already told you. I tend to think of it as a big box with my name on it, and then you know, wonder uh, you're going to have a different box, different wrapping paper with your name on it, that kind of thing. Well, here's what I got to tell you: we're not told in detail. What our heavenly inheritance is now, some uh, Bible teachers want to say all the obvious blessings of being in heaven in the presence of Jesus is our inheritance. I think it's more than that. I think that's kind of a given. I, I think part of it, some, I mean, is say peace and joy and and communion with God directly and, and with the Lord Jesus specifically. Yeah, that's all true. That's going to happen for us. But I think the inheritance is different than that. I think it's it's beyond that, if that's possible. Uh, but even though we don't know specifically what it is, I do think it will be beyond awesome, beyond the ability to explain with human categories. And I think it's, I, I would say it's residence plus. And I don't mean just being in heaven. I think it's what Jesus alludes to uh, in John 14. And I know you're very familiar with that statement, but go back to John 14. Uh, this is in the upper room just before the arrest and the crucifixion. He's trying to get the guys ready for what they're about to have to deal with. And we all know they chicken out under fire uh, uh, within hours of this anyway. But he says, uh, you know, where I'm going, you can't come now, but you'll come later. And and he says, don't panic, you know. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Keep on believing in God, the author. Keep on believing in me, the active agent. Uh, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Now, I know the King James says many mansions, okay. And that's exciting to think about a mansion, right, uh, the problem is there is a specific word in the original Greek for mansions, really super fancy houses. That's not the word that's used here. It's a more generic word for dwelling places and so more, most of the modern translations do that to you because that's what the word means. Uh, and that's such a letdown for some people to find out that, boy, you know, uh, especially my generation, we all use King James only, you know, when we were little uh, and that's all we heard and then we found out oh, it's not a mansion, it's just a dwelling place. Listen,
1: any dwelling place
0: in heaven prepared by Jesus is going to be better than any mansion on earth. Period over and out. Okay, get over it. We are for accurate Bible translation and also for accurate theological conception. Please, so don't let the <laughs> don't let the translation take your joy away here. So I think that's part of it. I think and I, I see it, it to whatever extent you need a domicile in heaven, both Heaven 2 and Heaven 3. We don't have time to get into that, but Homer knows all that, so he can explain it to you later. Uh, uh, Revelation 21 and the following, Heaven heaven 3. To whatever extent you need a domicile, you will get one. And you will really, really like it. And there will be no ongoing maintenance. Or what is that? On House Hunters, Debbie's favorite house, since I'm not going to get her new house, her favorite show is House Hunters, so she can lust... Lust after all these houses you know that we're never going to have, uh, but uh, now she does not really lust after him i don 't think but uh, sometimes some sometimes when you get these young couples that don 't have any money get these big houses that night she'll manage to kind of roll over in the middle of the night and put an elbow on my face, but i'm sure that's just an accident, you know, but um yeah uh. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be no maintenance. in, in that. What are these fees they charge you every month? If you live in certain kinds of neighborhoods, they cut the grass for you. Homeowners, whatever it is. There's there's an some, some acronym they use on that show. You know what I'm talking about? H-O, yeah. H-O-A, yeah. Homeowners Association, yeah. Yeah, okay. There'll be no H-O-A fees, okay? So uh, I'm sure of that. Uh, also, uh, medium ex- of exchange. I mean, we're going to like a cashless society, looks like, and now you got these little cards and stuff and nobody has a check anymore. They use the check card. Uh, to whatever extent we need medium of exchange, you'll have all you need and more, okay? You don't have to worry about that. Uh, clothing, to the extent we wear clothing, I don't think we all wear white, drab robes. I think some of you people picture me baptizing and thinking, I'm looking forward to heaven, but I'm going to hate, the wardrobe, because I don't want to look like that. Uh, you know, as much as I appreciate Marty Nixon and Angie making me that robe, I can't help but think, you know, I look like the Pilberry, Pilberry those Doughboy up there bur- burying and uh, baptizing people. But, uh, yeah, we're not told in great specificity what our heavenly inheritance is. I think it's more than just the obvious general blessings. I think I say it's residence plus. And we'll find out. But that's part of the deal. God likes good surprises. God likes to have good surprises for you, Janice. So you will not be disappointed in heaven. And whatever it is, it will blow your socks off. And I think for Janice, it will be a big cake that she'll be able to eat. And the thing about uh, heaven, you can eat anything you want and not gain weight. Okay, As a theologian, I can promise you that. I'm 99.9% sure of that. But, uh, and that, that'd be the last time you see a wedding cake in heaven. Just when you first get there, you'll see one, they'll go, I can't believe anybody could create a cake that great, and then will let you have one bite, and that'll be the last of it. Cause you, I know you dream about wedding cakes, and they're all nightmares now, right? When, you, when that's your job, right? So I get that. So we're gonna get this inheritance, which is permanent, uh, which can't be messed up from the outside, won't decay from the inside, and it's for us. And on your notes there, I've got kind of fill in the blank. Uh, it's imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for James Mitchell, or Jack Mitchell, or, uh, uh, David Stribling. I gotta pick somebody I haven't mentioned by name yet. If I don't, if, if I don't mention your name, I'm not leaving you out. I'm just picking representative people, you know, that stand out. Uh, and because you're protected by the power of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, through faith, which you used to access Christ initially. What I have to be saved, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll be saved. Uh, For an aspect of your salvation, future tense salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Boom. And watch this. Now next week we're going to pick up verse 6. And he's assuming you know what he just said when you get to verse 6. So you can't jump into verse 6, you know, in the middle of the stream. In this, all this good stuff, that God's caused you to be born again in your past, You've got an inheritance now that you're going to possess in the future. In this, based on the past and the future in Christ, you can greatly rejoice even though now you're being distressed by various trials, like losing your job, your homes, your pensions, little things like that. Big things, huge things. And that's the, that's the point here. I think the passage is saying the work of God in our past and our future should produce persevering praise, which is why in this book that focuses on suffering, the first basic command in the book is in one three: "Praise be to God, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." Because Peter is not unaware of their suffering, but he's saying, "I've got a perspective for you to drop your suffering in." Okay, and I think that's very important. Uh, appreciation for what God has done for us in the past and the present. Uh, is essential for Christians whose faith under fire now. And this is why for 2,000 years, uh, this is tough for American Christians to handle, but you know, millions of us have been martyred, and the vast majority, I think God gives you a special grace when you face this, have been so enamored with all Christ had done for them and will do for them, they're not happy about being martyred, but they go, uh, and they retain the faith. And they, in some cases, are singing hymns or other Wonderful things, even while they're being tortured to death. And you can read a little bit of church history, and you see that all over the place. And then for me, you know, I get a hangnail, or my car won't start, and it's like an existential theological crisis for me. You know, and I've got a theo- you know advanced seminary degrees, and it's like, man, you know, uh, maybe I'm not as tough spiritually as I thought. Uh, believers are not called to deny the reality or the pain of present problems. Now, that's that's the mistake we can make. You know, we think. We see somebody who's had a horrible, traumatic thing happen to them, and if we just tell him Romans 8.28, which they already know, but they're too emotionally uh, traumatized to really process at a rational level right now, we try to cram one Bible verse down their throats and say, hey, you know, cheer up, you know, he's in heaven. Well, yeah, we know our little boy's in heaven, but, you know, he was just molested and murdered, you know. Listen, there's nothing anybody's going to say make you feel good about tragedy, okay? Joy isn't a feeling, it's, uh, it's a decision to be centered on the grace of God. You know, it's kind of ranges from ecstatics to stability, based on your emotional pattern and your circumstances. Happiness is based on happenings, your circumstances. Joy is more profound than that. And if Jesus can have joy during the crucifixion, how do I know Jesus had joy during the crucifixion? Well, you went to Dallas Seminary, you knew everything. Now, I'm not sure they covered that. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The joy is not happiness. It's not ecstatics. It's not laughing and giggling and being silly and saying it doesn't matter. It does matter. Uh, there are some scars you can, uh, get in, in this world that aren't going to be cured or solved or healed this side of heaven. But knowing they are going to be healed this side of, in heaven, allows you to kind of tie your boat off and ride out the storm. And so this is the the way the the book is is structured. He saves the suffering part. He talks about suffering throughout the book, but he really saves the, the hardest truth until the very end. But he seasons the entire presentation about how we should think about suffering and deal with it without cracking up emotionally, psychologically, or spiritually by emphasizing the work of God in our past, present, and our future to allow us to do that. So we're not called to deny reality or pain, but we can prevent them from overwhelming us if we put them in perspective. And to Christians in crisis, the Word of God says, even in the midst of your worst earthly traumas, tie off both ends of your boat and ride out the storm in faith. Doubt your doubts and ride out the storm. Okay, Let's have a word of prayer. Father, please make our heavenly inheritance more real, more tangible for us. Uh, in a way, it's kind of easy for us to kind of picture uh, the death of Christ. and, and we, That's where our faith initially was in, in this crucified, risen Christ, and we have a pretty good picture of that. But heaven is just so unreal to us just because it so much transcends our experience to such an extent. And help us to realize that this is real. It's, it's, it's imperishable. It's permanent. It's not going to be messed up from outside forces. It can't be messed up from internal decay. And you've got an inheritance reserved for Amanda Birch with her name on it, as it were. And realizing that, uh, can be the other half of, uh, the supports that will allow us to ride out the storms of life as we tie off our dinghy on both, both the fore and the aft and help Uh, A lot of folks are in this room today, or some aren't here because of some of the issues they're dealing with, uh, help them to uh, realize that you are very present and a help in time of trouble, but uh, we need to put the present traumas and the present uh, pleasures in the context of our past and our future, and I pray the Holy Spirit would help us to do that. Uh, We pray in Christ's name, amen.